0: Welcome to the Philip Wiley Show. Take a look behind the curtain of professional hacking and hear compelling discussions with guests from diverse backgrounds who share a common curiosity and passion for challenges and their job. And now, here's your host, offensive security professional, educator, mentor, and author, Philip Wiley. Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm very excited to have Manit Sahib joining today. Uh, he's got a very interesting background. So he's got like a red team background, works for a consulting company, a new startup, and I'm sure he's got the his story will be very helpful and interesting to those that are wanting to get started in the industry. So I'm very uh, happy and honored to have you on the show today. Welcome. Oh, well, thank you, Philip, for having me. So hi everyone,
1: I'm Manit Saib, I'm an expert red teamer and social engineer. My background is the former red team lead for the UK Central Bank, where I use defensive techniques to protect the UK's payment and gold systems. I'm now the Director of Global Intelligence and Offensive Operations at Picnic, so as Phil mentioned, a startup. So Picnic is a company protecting organisations from social engineering attacks. So just a bit about my certifications and my accreditations. So I'm certified by the UK's National Cybersecurity Center, as well as His Majesty's now, CSG check scheme. And in addition, I hold a number of private certifications, including OSCP and Crest.
0: Very cool. Yeah, it's one of the things they don't we don't hear as much in the US about Crest, but I mean, it's a pretty well-respected uh, global certification standard. I mean, I, I was at uh, Hack in the Box Singapore back in... August of last year, I guess it was. And I was noticing there that some products, I guess some products even get CREST certified some some different tools and stuff. So very interesting. And I noticed back years ago, the OSCP started offering dual accreditation, accreditation uh, also CREST as well, if you uh, fulfill the requirements there. So very interesting to hear that. And And one of the things I love about when I get people on the show from other areas around the globe, we get to kind of learn about what's you know what's more popular there uh in in way things are done there compared to to here in the US.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean uh, Crest uh I think it started off in the UK It's now in Singapore um and also it's coming to the states. I know it's been uh, recently taken on by the Middle East as well. So the reason why there was Crest accreditations was to um hold the testers up to a certain standard. So they know they could fulfill a role when going into like consultancy position. Um, Obviously, what we're doing is malicious, right? So there was like the ethical check, make sure you're doing it right for the right purpose. And also the impact. You don't want to go into, for example, um, uh, ICS environment and DOS, DOS the machinery or whatever is critical national infrastructure. So with the crest comes the assurance that the tester on site, it knows what they're doing um, and yeah, I think it's getting a, a lot more traction across the globe. The, you mentioned OSCP, so when I was starting, that was one of the first certifications I got. It still is like the baseline gold standard for coming into like pen testing. Um, there's a lot of controversial uh, things around, you know, the pricing model that they've moved to. So, um, you know, Crest is still in, in good light, but I would say definitely from the UK standpoint crest is looked at as your go-to certification they have different levels from like pentester entry then they go all the way up to red team in uh, which is more the uh, covert operations sophisticated attacks and also red team management as well to make sure that you can conduct the engagement in a safe manner and that is regulated by you know i came from the uk central bank so one of the things that crest jointly did uh, with the bank was create the CBEST framework. So f- for all financial regulated firms, they have to go through this assurance testing, I think every three years to simulate what an adversary would be like within their network for you know detection and response capabilities. Um, so it's good to see that it's gain- gaining traction against the world, but I will say like certs is not the be all end all. It's just a checkbox to get you in, make sure you can do the job, but you know, there are other things out there. Experience plays a lot. I know TCM um, Academy is doing big things at the moment. Um, I know, you know, a lot of the juniors that can't afford the Crest certification or OSCP um, are going TCM route and, you know, the Cyber Mentor is doing an amazing, amazing job on that point.
0: You know, that's one of the interesting things that's changed about the industry because whenever I first took the OSCP, you know, now one of the, there's a lot more awareness to people that are trying to break into the industry, you know, because at one time, you wouldn't have known about the OSCP unless you worked in security or IT. You would have known of it. And, and a lot of people back when I first started taking the OSCP back in 2012, a lot yeah. of people did not know about it. They may have known about the certified ethical hacker, but they didn't really know. And I think one of the big differences, too, is even for the the pricing, you know, it's still can be offensive security courses can still be less expensive than like SANS. But one of the things, too, is, you know, these certifications really weren't geared towards people that are just trying to start out. You know, you someone like myself, when I was moving into it, I was moving from an AppSec role. So I was at a decent salary at the time and I could afford to pay out of pocket. But when you take someone brand new trying to break in the industry, you know, you're working at McDonald's or somewhere, it's kind of hard to afford those certs. So definitely great to see things like what the cyber mentor is doing.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree with you. you, know, you It's like a catch-22. You need the cert to get the role, but you don't have the certain skills to do the cert or you don't have the funding. Um, I faced that as well. I actually took out a credit card um, to pay for that because <laughs> I, I invested in myself, knew how to get somewhere. Um, but yeah, it, it's good to see that you've got a similar kind of journey as well. Um, so on that as well, when I started doing the OSCP, And I think I mentioned this at at a different interview as well. I went for a role in the UK and I got laughed at the interview for studying OSCP because they hadn't heard of it. And they were like, you need crest. And I was like, guys, (laughs) like, this is the gold standard. It wasn't in the UK at the time, but I could see it, the traction kicking off in the US. Um, And I was like, okay, cool. Went off, did my crest. Um, And at that point, I think there was two routes into getting that, you know, the check. So, uh, crest comes under a check status for government status that you can do the work and there was two ways of getting check and uh, back in the day there used to be tiger scheme so if you had like a military route you would do that so at that time i went uh, i went tiger scheme to get the check box to do check um then did oscp then did crest uh just to have the whole Holistic approach to the HR checkboxes, but it teaches all the same stuff, right? So, mm-hmm.
0: so how was the you know, because I have no familiar only thing I'd know about Crest is when well, I, what I'm familiar with, but my first introduction was getting the email from Offensive Security saying you're an OSCP, you could get the Crest certificate for, I think at the time. It was like some extra thing you had to do, like maybe take their written exam or forget exactly what it was to upgrade. So what does that look like for CREST certification? What does someone have to do to get CREST certified?
1: It's still a funny one. I'd still say, you know, go the full CREST route if you're doing it. So OSCP will give you the practical knowledge um, to pass the CREST practical exam. You still need to do the theory. So what we spoke about with your ethics, you know, your code of conduct, your compliance, your data um, protection act, all those sort of certain things you need to do through your written. If you do go the OSCP route to get your CREST, it still isn't enough for you to do uh, check level work. So to do check, you need um, CREST and you need clearance and that needs to be approved. If you've gone OSCP, you will not have the leverage to get your um, clearance, and then to do check. So if your ultimate goal is check, which is why you know, you do crest in the first place, or majority of people do crest to you know, have that government contract, or they're consulting to like the, the top tier clients, um, then I would advise doing crest by itself. And if you've done OSCP, it should be straightforward. Um, there is no uh, like training module for crest It is just go in there do an exam, and it's, I think it's four or five hours that you go on site for whereas OSCP is like 24. And then you know, the the high you get is like 48 hours and you know, ridiculous amount of times.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I, I definitely need to look into that it more. It's just kind of intriguing, and it's it's kind of nice to have that standard because one of the things, you know, in the US, you've got some other standards out there for for pen testing, like the penetration testing execution standard. Are there any kind of standards that go along with Crest, like a methodology that they've got?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, they you can take like OWASP as an example for like their Crest, um, their Crest kind of training, uh, sorry, their Crest. Let's start that again. So you can take their their standards similar to OWASP for their methodology to conduct the tests. But when you start going into the red teaming aspect, which Crest really shines, you um, then the methodology is governed uh, by like the CBEST framework. So how you go, you get your cyber threat intelligence before you're doing your actual red team engagements to make sure you know, you're acting on TTPs that are relevant to your space or your industry. Um, and I, I do think this is why it's going global because that, there is that assurance there that someone knows what they're doing. I did find, so I had conversations with people in the States and it was shocking to me, and I'm not saying for your listeners because you know they're probably mature, but there was conversations where people didn't understand the difference between pen testing and red teaming. They thought it was the same thing. right? And so this went <laughs> back and forth with a debate. And I was like, well, this is why you have Crest or frameworks like Crest because they will dictate how you conduct different tests for your client and for those who are listening don't know the difference between pen testing and red teaming pen testing is more isolated business focused uh, assurance testing that a system uh, could be vulnerable to certain things and you've done the appropriate steps to mitigate that risk and it could take it, it could take you three weeks to get access to the system it could take the client giving you credentials to log in. You bypass a lot of the security controls and the measures to get access to a system so you could find out all the vulnerabilities and test if they're vulnerable or not. The red team on the other hand is you have little to zero knowledge. Your scope is the entire organization or you know whatever it may be. And you have to gain access. There is no one aware except your control group uh, which is a certain amount of stakeholders which are aware that the engagement is going on, but your blue team or your detection team will not know it's going on. So the red team is to detect uh, is to assure their detection and response capability. So it's it's a very different style of testing, and that goes end to end through like the Lockheed Martin kill chain, from like reconnaissance, initial access, all the way up to like exfiltration or acting on objectives.
0: Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that explanation because I was going to actually actually ask you uh, because that's one of the things is just kind of that I get annoyed with sometimes because sometimes people are calling contesting red teaming. They just generalize, generalize it like blue team. You know, the blue team doesn't do all the same thing. They, they're uh, defending. So I think if you're going to generalize, I think it's best to use, you know, offensive security because there's different types of offensive security. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. Um, you know, the amount of recruiters that come, hey, there's a red team role.
1: I'm like, really? What is it doing? Oh, you're pen testing or an internal app. And I was like, this is not red teaming. Like yeah. <laughs> you if that's what they want, they're not mature enough. And and that's another point as well, right? You can't if you're an organization and you're not doing pen testing properly, then a red team is completely out of scope for you. Like there is a maturity model that you need to be Um, assured with your security posture, you need to test it that multiple times to the point where you're now like, okay, I want to simulate what, I'll pick Russia or someone like that, or an APT group, their impact they would have on our organization and would we be able to isolate and contain that breach um, and get them out, essentially. So if you haven't done pen testing properly or vulnerability assessments, then Red Team is completely out of scope for you.
0: Yeah, I got kind of a funny story for you that I have to share before I forget about it. I used to work for a company. I was the red team lead there, and we outsourced our web app pen tests. We did do some actual network pen tests as part of our department because there was only three of us and no dedicated pen test team. But we had a director that wanted a red team operation done against an SAP app.
1: <laughs> oh man, if you had air horns, you just press them, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah <laughs> that makes no sense. I've I've got a story actually. So I went on it was an internal engagement, internal pen test. I went on client site, you know, we've already scoped out the engagement. We already know IPs in scope and stuff like that. So it's literally turning up to site. And then my point of contact was like, oh, we wanna do a red and I looked at him and was like, "Well, <laughs> this is an inter- I'm on site now. This is an internal." And he was like, "No, what you can do is we can you can start off your scans here, and then uh, a few hours later, we'll move you to a different room, and then we'll move you to a different room, so the IPs will be different." And he thought in his mind that that was already, and it was so funny because then you would have the the SOC analyst coming over to the rooms looking at the port, and you'd be like, "This is <laughs> this is ridiculous." <laughs>
0: yeah that's kind of like a good friend of mine I used to work with uh he works really really good hacker I mean he's he's on the was on the pen test team there and a lot of times he wasn't getting detected but he was really finding a lot of stuff and and so they kind of were you know calling him a red teamer saying he's red teaming and he's not he wasn't trying to go undetected they just weren't detecting him and so it was just kind of like they just really didn't like him because he was making them look bad security wise he's just doing his job but yeah. <laughs> Pretty interesting though.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you, you do face that in internals. I, I find because I've done uh pen testing and red teaming for a consultancy and I've done it for an internal uh, organization as well. And there is a difference between the stakeholders and the technical people that would essentially if you're in internal, you know, these are your friends, you're gonna help them get better. So you know, the relationship management is is key on this.
0: Yeah, that's, it's very, very interesting to see the different ways. Cause I've worked as an internal pen tester before and you get people, and I guess you run into this in consulting too, where people try to talk you into downgrading vulnerabilities or removing vulnerabilities because they really don't think it's vulnerable. Or you get the system administrators or security people that just don't believe that yeah. it's vulnerable or you exploited it and you have to <laughs> yeah. prove to them <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, I, I I did have something like that. I won't mention which system because um, uh, <laughs> probably NBA, but there was a point where I'd compromised uh, a fresh environment within two hours and they couldn't believe it. And I was like, guys, I can now create persistence and DR, DRSM admin is like your local admin on the DC, which never gets reset, right? And I was like, I can create persistence there, and I would just sit back. And ten years later, I could pwn the network again, get your K- uh, krb tgt tickets, and you know, reuse them. And they didn't understand it. And then I did a network flow, and I showed them what the impact would be. And then they got it. So you know, there is <laughs> there is people that like, you come in to do a test, <laughs> and they don't fully understand it until you know you, you write that report or you. I find visuals are a really good way of doing it. So you know, node graph. Hey, I've compromised this. I've gone to here do you want me to do the next step? Do you want me to compromise, you know, your child domains and, <laughs> you know, own that side of the network as well? Um, but yeah, I mean, de-scoping, I've had, I've gone turned up to a site and I've had someone switch off a machine because they know it was vulnerable. So they, they didn't want us <laughs> to test it. And I was like, hold on, what, what are you doing there? Like, that's for our scope, switch it back on. And it was an outdated OS. And I was like, right, well, I'll have to write that up.
0: That that goes back to when you're talking about the red teaming having the control groups. And that's really the reason you have to really limit who has that. Because if you have someone that's managing the IR team or you know the firewall team or something, they may tip them off because they don't want to look bad. So they, that way they're watching to detect. Yeah,
1: definitely. I've had that on physicals. So I've done a number of physical like break-in, you know, assessments, and the amount of times that the person that you're supposed to be getting in or your lead contact on site already knows something is happening you're like well what is the point of me being here if you already know that i'm going to be doing a physical pen test uh, but yeah i've got some cool stories on, on that and access control i mean for, for a physical engagement you know osin is your best friend um we used to have like id uh, printers so go on instagram you know, look at your targets. There's always some office party with badges showing. So, you know, you zoom in, find it, get it in paint, and then you know, create your own one and then print it out on the ID printer. And then, you know, scope out through Google Maps, whatever it may be, what the entry points would be. And at this point, you know, you, you're you gonna go on site, you're gonna show your pass and you're gonna pretend it's not working because obviously your barcode is just printed uh, as a picture <laughs> rather than functional. Um, and then you say there's an issue and then you'll go in. And, uh, you know, it's worked a lot of the times. There were there was one where I had a security uh, desk, you know, flashed my badge. They didn't obviously recognize me and I just flashed it and they are like, cool. It was an unmanned reception desk. And then I found it was all access control doors um, in the building. And first thing, you know, if you've done enough physicals, you'll know the next step is to go into the stairwells and see what could be the entry point in different floors. Went up, you know, hitting all these doors with access controls from the stairwell until we got to the top floor. Top floor was a delivery floor. So we're able to get in. And then from that, you know, scoped around, saw that there was a lift, got in the lift, way down to the first floor, bypass access control on the office floor. And then you can, you can do what you need to do.
0: Yeah, it's one, one of the things definitely, I think, companies need to focus on is to make sure that test the physical and social engineering, because, you know, sometimes you can have really good network controls and be able to block just about anything. But if someone's able to get access to a keyboard where someone's logged yeah. in as administrator, you don't have to be that skilled of a hacker to to do some damage.
1: Yeah, no, precisely. And even, even, um, you know, you've got network ports, that are potentially enabled but there's no cable in it so you know if i'm going around and i see that there's a network port on or you know near the ground i'm going to plug into it and and see if it's available majority of the times it is unless they've had a physical before and they know to lock it down um it's going to be available
0: yeah very very interesting what so what is one of the most interesting so one of of the most interesting stories where maybe you've maybe you've gotten caught on a physical? Uh,
1: (laughs) Oh, I I was so, uh, okay, cool. So um, I won't mention, obviously can't mention the client, but they had a shared office space. Uh, We had two consultants, two different pretexts. I was coming in as an interviewee, right? And we were pretending that was meeting the CFO. And what we realized beforehand is their domain Um, didn't have their DMARC, um, DNS, SPF, DKIM records uh, securely locked down. So we were able to impersonate the CFO and email the shared security desk saying that there's an interview candidate coming, right? So lined up the pretext perfectly, came in, Um, I was speaking to the security guard that allowed my colleague then to pretend that he was already part of the building and he just walked straight past because obviously I had distracted the security guard. And that's a side note. If you do have security guards at your entrance, make sure you have two or three because this is a common technique for social engineers to distract one to the other one uh, so, you know, someone else can walk in. But anyways, he got in, but my pretext was coming in as an interview candidate, went up to... I think it was the second floor. Got in this access control door, rang the bell, and at this point, you know, I'm I'm going for a role. I think it was under the CFO position. You know, I have no idea about finance, so I was pretending to be arrogant and cocky. So I was like, I pulled my <laughs> phone out, pretending I was on the phone, and I think it was an intern or junior answered the door, and I was like, Hey, I've got an interview with the CFO here's my sheet, Uh, you know, I'm due to come in. However, I've got an important call. Um, I need a meeting room right now. And I put them on the spot. So you either have to be really confident or really naive for people to trust you as a social engineer. So she was like, oh, please come in, sit down. So I had the meeting room. Um, You could see it was, uh, the glass was faced onto the workspace. So everybody could see, you know, I've come in. Um, And then I unplugged the VoIP phone, plugged my laptop in, started you know ping sweeping across the network you know I was pretending I'm on the phone and then I had someone come in must have been the floor manager and say you know we have no record of you being here um you know what are you doing why have you plugged your laptop in and at this point you know I had my get out of jail free letter in my, in my pocket so I was like oh should I use it should I not and I was like yeah I'm supposed to be here and you could tell she was getting frustrated. At that point, I'd completed my mission, get access on site, make sure I can connect to an endpoint and then, you know, scan the network. So it was just like fun and game. So I was going back and forth with her, realized she was not budging. And then I pulled out my uh, get out of jail free card. We call it a <laughs> towel testing authorization letter. And I said, yeah, I'm here for a physical. She didn't believe it. So she was at the point where she's going to call the police. Um, and then I had like the contact phone number to say, this is an ethical engagement. Um, so yeah, it, it was fun. Um, it puts you on the spot, but yeah, t- and I, I did have to write up that I, I was correctly challenged by the floor manager, you know, and kudos to them for calling me out on it.
0: Yeah. I'm sure that's kind of good to see from time to time, you know, cause I know, I know of people that were pen testers that got out of pen testing because, uh, I knew this guy, he's a really well-known digital forensics analyst here locally. He did digital forensics and pen testing, but one of the things he got frustrated with is he'd go do the pen tests, give them the report. They would never remediate the items. He would come back, find the same stuff, even worse. So he got so frustrated he went into digital forensics because if there's an incident, people are going to comply, you know. And so,
1: I, I, I can totally <laughs> relate. This is the this is the reason I moved from external pen testing for a consultancy to internal. Um, because I would see the same thing. I'd come back year after year, same clients or similar clients, same sort of vulnerabilities. And you're like, well, I'm doing all this testing. It's not really going down. And the client just wants it for assurance, right? So whether it's an ISO 27001 or whatever it may be to check the box that they've done a pen test. And you weren't seeing that full circle of remediations. So then I moved internal uh, where I could, you know, support the development team, make sure fixes are put into place, um, and see it from a different side, and then you get involved in like you know the detections and helping them build use cases out to detect malicious behavior. So it becomes quite interesting. So you, you see that quite a lot from pen testing or offensive actions. The mixture between you know going uh, across the sea to the to the blue team or getting involved in more purple team assessments where you're collaborative.
0: So very cool. So what would be your recommendations for someone that wants to get into? red teaming or social engineering doing the physical assessments because one of the things i know you don't readily see i know you go to the conferences sometimes you see some some training for physical and social engineering so what are some good resources there for someone that wants to to learn that
1: yeah yeah i mean i would say first off networking um you know you can only get so much from a training course uh you know having podcasts like this giving that mindset or experience to others to see how they've, how they've approached certain problems and how they've resolved it is very different from just doing a training course in isolation. So networking, I would say is key. Go to the conferences, speak to people. There's things that people will tell you in person which they might not on a public channel or via a training course. So I love to keep up to date with training uh, and I love to go in person to meet the instructors because there might be that one nugget that clicks for you uh, and helps you on your next mission or goal. Um, so networking definitely, I would say, you know, you know, leverage, leverage podcasts like this, that sharing information experiences. Um, if you've got, uh discord or you know join the discord forums if you're on twitter keep up to date with that i actually use and this is like in there's no plug but i use personally feedly it's an rss feed that you can plug in you know um, whether it's twitter or whether it's reddit or whatever and every morning i just look at that to see the activities that, that are happening and you just get to learn off other people's research so i would say you know keep up to date with your research, networking. Um, exp- just remember the certs are not the be all end all. It's just the to check the box that you get in. You still need the experience to do the job. Um, I know that a Hat the Box has more red team labs. So if you wanna practice, I think they're pretty cheap. Um, CRTO, uh, you know, I'll plug that as a course uh, by Daniel Duggan. That is a really good resource. Uh, sand is very expensive, but if you do have the funds, then go for like Sands. 565s, five, five, which is done by Jean. Um, it's a very good course as well for Red Team and uh, Adversary Emulation. Um, Mgeeky, he does a lot of malware uh, development. So he's got a malware development course, which is really good. So if you're looking at you know, Red Team space, you need to understand what is the architecture of y- your infrastructure? What does your C2 look like? you've got to go into what do I need to do to bypass detections? So that's where your malware development comes in. One of the other things I, I also do on, on the Red Team side is I abuse third-party services for maybe delivery, um, wherever, I can, wherever I can hop into them and use a legitimate service to do malicious activity, I'll do that. So you know, if you're interested in it, go and test a few things. There's nothing more valuable than having your own testing done writing a post about it, having your own GitHub and sharing that with the community because that will get your name out. And that's when you go for the next interview, wherever it may be, people will see that you're already contributing to the community. And you know they'll take that as a leverage over other people who just say, oh, I've done this. Sir.
0: Very cool. Great, great information there. So we're down towards the end of the episode. Is there anything you'd like to share before we close it out?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, everything that we're doing on the red team side, especially now even at Picnic, is a threat intelligence led. So, um, you know, with Picnic, we are building a uh, you know, a solution around human attack surface management um, and using the threat intel as a component. So, I've taken that from the CBEST framework and Crest as that is threat intelligence is the key pillar. So, I'm I'm trying to push that into the product focus. That's on uh, you know the product side for me personally you know i am a red teamer <clears throat> i i do contribute to the community i do have a youtube channel um it's called red team raw where i interview hackers and you know like-minded individuals for myself not necessarily for the technical elements but more about the experience and, and their journey so you can check that out you can get me on linkedin uh manet sahib sahib with a b um I don't know if this is explicit or not, but yeah, beef for Bravo, beef for bullshit. So yeah, you know, you can check me out on there. Um, But yeah, that's me. I'm always happy to, you know, engage in conversation. So if you are stuck in your career or, you know, you do need advice, one of the reasons I created my uh, content was to help individuals, um, you know, get the roadmap for the next step. Because I know when I was, you know, learning, I didn't have that. I didn't have people like you, Philip, that, you know, had podcasts like this and, and helped us. So if anyone needs advice or help or is struggling, you know, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'm more than happy to help you.
0: Well I appreciate you joining today. Was, this is a very interesting conversation. It was a lot of fun. So thanks. Thanks again. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everyone and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to The Philip Wiley Show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, to learn more about Philip, go to thehackermaker.com and connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Philip Wiley. Until next time.